There was a loose end that I needed to tie up from last Sunday morning's message. John Anderson came up to me last Sunday and said, you told us the podcast you were considering to listen to on the way home, and you never told us what one we, you settled on. It actually wasn't a true crime podcast. We actually settled on a marriage podcast, believe it or not, and we were helped wonderfully on the way home by hearing discussions on the subject of marriage and how to strengthen your marriage. But in any event, I, I start there again because we are all suckers for a story. We are story hearers and we are storytellers. We entertain, we entertain ourselves with stories. True crime stories. Fictional stories. What is Hollywood? Hollywood is a storyteller. What is Disney? Disney is a storyteller. When you go to Disney World, the magic kingdom, why is it so attractive to children and to others? Because they are coming into a story. A story that they have told themselves and we have told them where there are princes and princes and princesses and there are good and there is evil and, and there is celebration and there is joy and, and there is fantasy. I mean everything if you look around us it is all about narrative. It is all about story. You know that because we're in the middle of a presidential campaign. Have you heard the stories that, that we tell? They, they come in the themes of campaigns. Make America great Again, that's a story. It, it has an arc. It has a narrative. It has heroes. It has villains. And every party, every candidate is trying to do just this. If this person had been in office, this would have never happened. If only X, then Y. We are storytellers. And this goes back to who we are as, as human beings. If you were to go back across human civilization and look at the stories, the myths that we tell about ourselves about each civilization, about the creation, about all these things. If you were just to look at all the, the utterly fantastic and truly unbelievable myths that have popped up over time. Why? Because we are storytellers. This is what I do as part of my quote-unquote day job. When I was at a trial for three and a half weeks, we were telling a story. We were telling a story about what had happened, and we were trying to line it up with the facts of what had happened. And the job, ultimately, is of the jury to decide whose story is accurate, what the real story is, because we all know there's a story, and sometimes it lines up to the truth, and sometimes it doesn't. And I start here because one of the most pernicious acts of storytelling we can do is not about what happens around us. Oh, we tell stories about the things that happen around us. The most pernicious, some of the most pernicious stories are the stories we tell about ourselves. I want you just to think about that for a minute. Do you know that you, by nature, tell stories and believe stories about yourself and they may be utterly false? Just consider that for a little bit. Now, now think about how we do that. You know someone who you would call the name dropper? You've been around that kind of person? Everything that they can ties back to a story that involves them and a famous person. 
As if the reflected glow of that famous person will shine on them and, and make them look a little more beautiful, a little bigger. What are they doing? They are telling a story about themselves. Have you ever been around the kind of person who, who they're always at the center of their stories? They're always the hero of their stories? If I hadn't been on the scene. Now, they may couch it in humble ways or in ways that appear to be uh, more self-effacing. But in reality... They're always the hero of their own story. Be careful of that, by the way. Listen to your own stories you tell and say, am I the hero always of my own story? Am I at the center of all of the narratives that I'm crafting and spinning? We tell stories about ourselves. It's like the guy who used to be an athlete or used to be a, a competitive this or that or the other and they've never been able to get out of that story plot, of that story arc, of themselves at the center, of themselves the hero. And sometimes we look at them and say, hey, dude, grow up. That was a long time ago, right? And you can, you can say the same idea in so many things, in so many different ways. We tell stories about ourselves. Now I start here because in this story that we're looking at this morning, Mark 14, 66 through 72, we're looking at one of the most famous stories in all of the New Testament. The story when Peter, the great apostle of the early church and one of Jesus' closest friends on earth, denied that he even knew him. You were with Jesus. No, I wasn't. You were one of his disciples. I swear, and if you'll permit me, to God that I don't. I don't even know him. Probably most of us coming in this morning are familiar with that story. We, we either grew up telling that and hearing that ourselves, or we've heard it repeated over and over. It is this great contrast between the Peter of the New Testament, the one who was boldly standing up and proclaiming who Jesus was, and who ultimately, tradition tells us, was crucified upside down, killed, martyred, like Jesus was. This bold man, this rock, his name literally means rock, Peter, a rock, a stone, this foundation stone. And now here, he's crumbling. We need to ask ourselves when we come to a, a famous passage like this in the Bible, why is it here? Why is it in here? Every single one of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, contains this story, and every one of them ends with something really, really interesting. If you look here in verse 72, will you, in Mark chapter 14, maybe it's a detail that has slipped over your mind when you've considered this story. Verse 72 says, And the second time the cock or the rooster crew, the rooster crowed in the early morning hours. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, the rooster crows, Thou shalt deny me thrice, or three times. He remembered something. And when he thought thereon, when he thought on what he remembered, he wept. He went out utterly bawling. I want to suggest to you this morning that the story here in Mark 14 ties centrally to a story that Peter was telling about himself. And it's a story that was false. 
And before Peter could be rebuilt as the great apostle, the great proclaimer at Pentecost, the great rock, if you will, in the early church, he needed to realize, to be broken, to be rebuilt, recognizing that he wasn't who he thought he was. That this rock that he perceived himself as was not the reality of the situation. When he thought thereon, he wept. The title of the message this morning is The Rock That Crumbled. The Rock That Crumbled. And I want us to look at Peter's story, the story that he told himself. I want to look at how that story utterly crumbled in his own eyes, in his failure, and ultimately how that story was rebuilt. Because in this Christmas season, we need to assess what stories we're telling about ourselves, what truths we need to see about ourselves, and above all, what truths we need to see about our Savior who's the real hero of this Christmas season. I want to look, first of all, at what I'm going to call Peter's confidence. Secondly, we're going to look at what I'm going to call Peter's crumbling. And third, we're going to look at Peter's conversion. Peter's confidence, Peter's crumbling, and Peter's conversion. And I want us to start in this confidence at at his name, Now, you may remember, if we go back now, oh, I don't know, I'm sure over a year, when we were starting in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus is called together his followers, and he picks out 12, picks out 12 of them to be the ones that would most live life with him have the closest fellowship and connection to him. And one of these was Peter. But do you know that wasn't originally his name? What was Peter's born name? Simon. Simon bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Simon. And in fact, we're introduced to him as Simon. And we see in Mark chapter 3, listen to this very interesting detail. Simon, he, that's Jesus, surnamed Peter. So his given name is Simon, and Jesus says, You're gonna, I'm going to call you Simon Peter. What is the surname? It's your last name, right? So he called him Simon Peter. And what does Peter mean? Peter comes, we would use the idea of Petros or Petra, In the Greek, it's a rock. It's a stone. And so Jesus is giving him an indication of what he wants him to be. Not that his parents had given him, but Jesus said, you're Simon, Peter, the rock, a stone. Interesting. So what would you think if you were Peter? Well, that's pretty cool. Jesus thinks I'm a pretty stable guy. He thinks I'm someone you can... Build on? Mm hmm. And do you sense through the gospel how this became part of his persona? Do you remember when Jesus asked, Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, After they had all given their answers, they say you're this or that or the other, you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? 
You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, flesh and blood, Peter, hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. <clears throat> well, yes, Jesus, thank you. Peter it is, reporting for duty, the rock. Sign me up. What happens only a few short verses later? Jesus takes them and says, boys, let me tell you what's going to happen. And we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be killed. And it says, Peter took him aside, the rock, and began to rebuke him. You want to talk about a guy that has some self-confidence? Yeah, you're the Messiah and you're the Son of God. I've just confessed that boldly and uncompromisingly. Now, Jesus, I've got to tell you where you're wrong. Whoa. But let's be honest. Have, have we ever told God that we think he's wrong? Have we ever complained about our lot in life? Hey, God, are you sure I should be here right now? This is a little more direct and it's a little more bold. We should all have some humility about where we've been. But and yet it's really, it's really telling, isn't it? This is a man of, of some supreme self-confidence. And do you know we see this coming out in Mark chapter 14? We studied it. Go back for just a moment to verse number 27. Mark 14. Jesus says to them, in this last night they have together, before his death, all ye shall be offended or stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter, the rock, said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet shall not I. Yet will not I. Everyone else may be unstable. Not the rock. Not the stone. Jesus, you can count on me. Listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, we're talking hours, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Jesus told him exactly what would happen. And, but he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Jesus, I would die for and with you. I would never deny you. The rock. This is his view of who he is. Friends, do you see the story that Peter is telling himself? You see the story that he believes? Everyone else may leave, but you never have to worry about me. I am impregnable. I am strong. I am stable. You can stand on me and count on me. You see, this is the reason, one of the reasons, we fall so frequently because we believe lies about ourselves. We tell stories about ourselves and our own capabilities that not only aren't true, go against the teaching and counsel of God himself. It's an amazing thing when you talk to someone and 
they're, they're going against the word of God in a particular way. But they think that they're the exception. Oh, that, that may be a good idea for some. I know the Bible says that I shouldn't do X, Y, or Z. Or that I should do A, B, or C. And that's good for some people. But for me, I think it's okay. What story are you telling about yourself? What story are you believing when the word of God, the counsel of God says one thing, and like Peter, you say, but not I. That doesn't really truly apply to me. Friend, beware. What story are you telling about yourself? Well, well that may work for some people's marriages, but, but for ours? But, 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 but for my experience? Beware. What lie? What story are you telling? You know, I should just ask here. Is there any area of life as you come here today that you know is out of step with the counsel of God? With the word of God? With the revelation of God as presented in the Bible? If there is that area in your life that you know is wrong, but you have convinced yourself it might be okay for me, beware. You're telling a story about yourself, just like Peter did. Sure, Jesus, you may say that. You may say that I'm going to do this, but not me. You don't really know me. Oh, yes, he did. He knew Peter far better than Peter knew himself and the story he had convinced himself of. Peter's confidence led directly to, secondly, Peter's crumbling. Peter's crumbling. Here, the rock, the stone, the stable one. That story needed to be broken. It needed to be revealed for the lie that it was. And in fact, we see a little bit of a, a foreshadowing of this. Earlier again in Mark chapter 14. Do you remember when Jesus tells his disciples, you watch here, and then he goes off and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he comes back and what does he find them doing? Sleeping. They're sleeping because they're so sad. It's just drained them of energy. And listen to what Jesus says. He comes in verse 37 here of Mark 14, and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter. Did you ever notice that? He didn't talk to all three of them. All three of them were sleeping, and who does he look at? He looks right at Peter, the confident one, the rock. And someone tell me what he called Peter. What, what name did he call Peter. He called him, here in Mark 14, he called him Simon. Do you know, friends, you can look back through the book of Mark, and from Mark 3, when Jesus surnames him Peter, to Mark 14, when he's rebuking him for falling asleep in the garden, do you know that name Simon never comes back? His name is Peter. And now suddenly, in Peter's great moment where he is falling down this path toward destruction, Jesus says, hey, Simon, do you think Jesus wanted to send a little signal to them? Hey, you're not so much the rock right now, are you? Hey, Petra? No, Simon? Your old name? Maybe your old nature? Simon? He didn't quite get it, did he? He keeps on going down this path. Well, let's pick up the narrative now in verse 66, shall we? And let's see Peter's crumbling, just as this very simple, compelling story unwinds. Look at verse 66. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, 
Now, two questions come to mind. First, how did he get there? Well, you've got to go back to verse 54. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. He followed him afar off. Now, just think about this for a moment. How did he get there? Why, why was he there? Well, Matthew in, in, tells us why he was there in, in tw Matthew 26 and verse 58. You might just want to make a little note of this for cross-reference. It says, Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, now the idea there is to see the outcome. Peter was curious. And he loved Jesus, and he undoubtedly had some loyalty for Jesus. And so, can't you just imagine, he runs away with all the disciples. He's scared when Jesus gets arrested, and all these soldiers and temple officers are there with weapons. He runs! And then he stops, and he thinks, wait a second. What's going to happen here? Do you think a little bit of shame set in? A little bit of compensation? Wow, I'm embarrassed that I ran. Let me go and see what's happening. And he goes straight into the mouth of the lion. I mean, let's step back here for a minute. We, we ridicule Peter or, or, or we criticize him a little bit. We think, ah, oh, you really failed. How many of us would have gone to the high priest's house that night? Be honest. Jesus is on trial. It's a capital crime being charged against him. The end might be death. Would you have gone? to the high priest's house where he was being tried? Would you have gone there if you had cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? No, there's some bravery here. This is not pure cowardice. He went, he wanted to see the outcome, and he walks in. Actually, if you compare this passage to John chapter 18, you'll see that there were two disciples there. Not just Peter. Who's the other one? Well, he's unnamed in the Gospel of John, but it seems pretty clear that it was John himself. Again, cross-read your Bibles, folks. God gave us four different accounts for a reason. He wants us to piece some details together and get some interesting things. So why was he there? He was there. He wanted to see the outcome. And he's going back at some risk to himself. And then, well, what does it mean here that he was beneath in the palace? This is an interesting detail. There's a courtyard here, and there's a fire at the courtyard, and the servants and other people in the middle of the night are around on a cold night warming themselves at the fire, and Jesus is being tried, likely in an upstairs room. You can just picture a courtyard, and there's prob probably steps going to the area where Jesus was being interrogated, and ultimately where he was being perhaps brutally treated. It was perhaps in that space itself that he was being mocked and, and beaten as we studied last week. So again, these wonderful little details, these pictures. And notice in verse 66, there comes one of the maids of the high priest, one of the servant girls, just likely a young girl. And, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him. Again, friends, we need, to, we need to read the Bible with an eye for these details. This is so wonderfully human and natural. She's walking by, and in fact, in the book of John, we notice that there was a servant girl who opened the door, who let Peter in. Okay? You see this picture. She sees Peter at the fire, and can't you just see in the dark of the night the light of the fire just reflecting on Peter's face as he's sitting there at the fire. And it says she, she saw him and she looked upon him. That's not just an, an irrelevant detail. It's like this. She's looking at them and she looks at them and then she goes like this. 
The idea is of staring, of looking intently. She's looking at his face. And can't you just imagine the red start rising up in Peter's face? The flush, uh uh-oh. Uh-oh, she's staring at me. And notice, she says, And thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. Don't miss that detail. Jesus of Nazareth. What was the view of Nazareth in that day? Do you remember when Jesus was calling one of his disciples and he heard that he was from Nazareth and this disciple responded, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the idea. I don't know what, this, what, what the spirit behind these words are, but I wouldn't be totally surprised if you were with Jesus of Nazareth, huh? You were, weren't you? Can't you see the heat rising more with Peter, the discomfort coming up as he's right in the mouth of the lion in the high priest's palace? And listen to what he says. He denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. Now, again, how human is this? How many times have we been confronted with something uncomfortable and our immediate reaction, the law calls it the exculpatory no. You did it, didn't you know? The exculpatory no. How how often would we be tempted to respond like, Peter, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're saying. In fact, commentators say that this would have been a common way to deny a legal charge among the Jews of that time. It's almost like he was saying, I don't know what you're talking about and I can't even figure out what you're saying. I just I had no idea. That was Peter's original response. And no, notice what comes next. He, and he went out into the porch. So he's in the courtyard and now he, it's like he excuses himself from the fire. And isn't this so human, so natural? The heat got ratcheted up a little bit, and he says, let me go find a more comfortable place to be. Not here at the fire where I'm getting, in, in, where I'm getting in, 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 interrogated. And the cock crew, the rooster crowed. Wow. Huh. Verse 69, and a maid saw him again and began to say to them that stood by, this is one of them. And again, if you go compare this to the other gospel accounts, you'll see that there were multiple speakers and multiple people who were picking up the same thing. This wasn't just one servant girl. It was like one of them heard it, and then the others one said, oh, yeah, 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 you were with them. And you can, again, isn't this so human? You're in a group, and you're trying to find a a, a spot where you're not in the spotlight, and suddenly this maid comes back and says, yeah, you were with him. And it's like she's saying it to everyone else. Hey, this guy right here, this guy was with Jesus. No! His fear and his anxiety taking over, and he denied it again. Second denial. And a little after, they that stood by. Now stop there, a little after. We learn from one of the gospel accounts that it was about an hour after. This did not happen in five minutes. This was not boom, boom, boom. It was not Peter just losing his temper and getting all crazy. I mean, there's some time here that elapsed. Just keep that in mind. About an hour later, what happens? They that stood by said again to Peter, they. Do you think they had been talking about it? Do you think they'd been piecing things together? In fact, we know. Do you know in, in, in the book of John, we learned that one of the ones who was interrogating him this last time was a relative of the guy whose ear he had cut off? One of his relatives. <laughs> that would be uncomfortable. 
It would be. Look in what they say again to Peter. Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. His accent gave him away. If you were a Galilean, you spoke probably a more Syrian form of dialect with your particular accent, just like we can tell if someone's from the north or from the south in the United States, just by the way they speak. They said, "How we're, we're putting the pieces together here. You may say you weren't with Jesus, but you're clearly a Galilean because of the way you speak. And, and, and we know that you were. And now listen to what Peter does. And he began to curse and to swear saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. Now those are two ideas there. He began to curse, and he began to swear. Take the second one first. What does it mean that he began to swear? Don't think of him just using like vulgarity or profanity. He was swearing an oath as if he were in court. What, what he would be saying is something like this, I swear to God. Or he would be saying, I swear by the temple. That was common in those days too. I swear by the temple. I swear by the altar. Or whatever it was. He was putting himself under oath. Now, now by the way, remember what Jesus said? Swear not at all. If your word, if the validity of your word depends on you saying, I swear to you got a big problem because Jesus says your yes should be so honest and your no should be so honest. That's all that anyone needs. You don't need to swear. Now, the fact that Jesus allowed himself to be placed under oath, remember we saw last week, suggests that it's not wrong to swear under oath in, in, in a legal context. That's, that's my view as a lawyer uh, in any event. Um, but we shouldn't need to swear. That's what Jesus is saying. We shouldn't need to promise, cross my heart and hope. No. Our word should be good enough. Peter, though, began to swear, and he began to curse. What, what does that mean? I think the idea here is that he began to call curses on himself if he were lying. In other words, I swear by the temple, and God can curse me if I'm lying. Whoa. I mean, think about this. He says, I know not this man of whom you speak. His self-control utterly abandons him. His self-confidence, his self-assurance is utterly obliterated. And friends, I just want you to think about his view of himself. The rock, the stone, everyone else could deny you. I will never deny you. And then the reality of his own weakness comes like some big, big boulder and crushes that little stone. And it's Gone. It's obliterated. The story that he believed about himself is dead. He's no stone. He's no rock. You put a servant girl on the case and put him in some physical danger, and that man runs. I swear to you with curses upon myself. I don't even know him. You know, friends, this stone needed to be crumbled. The story that he believed about himself and about his own strength, it needed to be obliterated. And I just want to suggest to you this morning that for some of us here today, myself probably included, there are some stories that we've been telling about ourselves, and they need to be broken if we're going to be useful for God. 
There are some lies that we've begun believing about our own strength, about our own righteousness, about our own ability, about who we are as the center, as the hero of our own story. And, and, and let us learn from Peter's story that it might be the grace of God for that story to crumble before your eyes. Perhaps some of you would say, you know, Peter, that's already happened. By the grace of God, there was a lie that I believe, and God was very gracious to break that for me. I've received new deliverance. I've received new strength and victory when the lie that I was believing about myself needed to be crushed. You see, we need to see not only Peter's confidence, not only Peter's crumbling, but finally Peter's conversion. Because this story ends with Peter going out and weeping, utterly broken. Have you, You've been there. Times in your life where you are completely broken and all you can do is weep bitterly over and over and over again. But this story is actually a wonderfully happy one. I just want to think about this for just a moment. Peter's conversion, I don't mean... Peter's salvation. Peter had already confidently placed his trust in who Jesus was. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. He, in that sense, I think, had already been converted, but there was another conversion that needed to happen. And it's the conversion that Jesus means in Luke chapter 22 when he says, Simon, Simon, this is that last night, Simon, Simon, not Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, shaky, as one pastor said, rocky or shaky? The shaky one, right? Behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when you're turned, when you're turned, that's what I mean, strengthen thy brethren. What did Peter's conversion, in this sense, his turning, involve? First of all, it involved what he remembered. What he remembered. Will you notice with me again? It's straight from the text. Look in verse 72. The second time that rooster crowed. And it was like an alarm went off. Listen to, what he, listen to what it says. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. He remembered. Now why does each of these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all highlight this? He remembered. He called to mind. Because... Again, what did Peter need to see? He needed to see who he was. He needed to remember that Jesus was the one telling him all along, Peter, you're weak here. You're going to fall here. And he needed to remember what he had been saying. I will never do that. I'm the rock. I'm the one that you can count on above everyone else. He needed to stare his own lie in the face and watch it crumble in front of him. He needed to remember what Peter, I think, saw there was he wasn't who he thought he was. He wasn't in reality the fictional character he had been creating for himself. And as I said, perhaps for a lot of us this morning, the fictional character we paint on the canvas of our own life, we need to see that torn down. We need to see that defaced when we see who we are really are. 
Oh, the one who had said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. It took only a servant girl to destroy that reality. He called to mind. He remembered what Jesus had said. The second thing, though, that he needed to be converted, to be turned, was not only that he remembered, but that he repented. He repented. Will you notice what happens? And when he thought thereon, he wept. And it says elsewhere in another account, he wept bitterly. The idea is he just kept on weeping over and over and over and over again. There's a little tradition. I, I don't know whether it has any validity, but there's some beauty to it that's recorded. Um, Spurgeon comments on this tradition that said, Peter couldn't go the rest of his life with hearing a rooster crow without weeping again. Again, is that true or not? I have no idea. But it's a pretty wonderful thought, isn't it? That this idea so touched his soul, so touched his spirit of what he had done and who he really was, he could not help but weep. Now, again, I just, I just comment this for your own thought. You can take this and, and think this through. Do you know Judas himself came back to the high priest after he had betrayed Jesus and said, I have sinned? And then he went out and hung himself without ever receiving forgiveness. Peter also betrayed Jesus in his own way. He denied him. And yet in his tears, he found forgiveness. And you'll have to think this through, but Peter's were repentant tears. They weren't simply regretful tears. What does that mean? It means there was something in Peter that turned. That's what it means to be converted, to repent. It means to turn. It means something in him saw the lie, but it saw the truth too. And I'll just point this out for a little cross-reference and again for some more thought on your own. Listen to what Luke 22 says, verse 61, that led to that repentance. It says that as... As that cock crowed, as that rooster crowed, as Peter denied, listen, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Did you remember that? It could have been because Peter was down below and Jesus was being interrogated up above and uh, through perhaps an open window or opening, Jesus looked and they locked eyes. It could have been because Jesus was being led out. I mean, can you imagine perhaps Jesus bloodied, beaten, coming out into that courtyard area and looking at Peter, looking him straight in the eye, and Peter looking at him just as he's denied and failed his greatest friend. And he remembered. Can you imagine what that look was like? Can you imagine perhaps the disappointment? But can you imagine the love and the compassion that Jesus would have communicated in that one look and it was enough to just break this man's heart. He went out and he kept on weeping over and over and over again. You see, friend, I, I cannot overemphasize this. If there is to be a usefulness for God, if there is even to be our own conversion to faith in the first place, there must be repentance. There must be. And I say that because I, I, I remember a conversation I had not long ago with a professing believer. And this, this person said to me, he said, you know, I'm grateful for all of my mistakes that happened. I've made some mistakes. I'm grateful for all of them because I've learned from them. And I was talking to this person. I said, be careful. I said, yes, you can learn from all your mistakes. 
but you need to repent. That was the essence. The Bible talks about repenting. It's not enough to say, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I sin, sure, but I'll do better next time. Mm -mm. What Peter needed was to look at the lie in the first place that led him there. He needed to turn in his own recognition of that lie and of that truth. And I say to you, friends, there is forgiveness with Jesus Christ when you come to him for the worst and darkest of your sins. But get this, you must come with repentance. You must come willing to humble yourself before him and say, you were right and I was wrong. Let's put aside this modern lie. That as long as we learn from our mistakes, it's all to the good. No, friend. Paul, Peter needed not only to remember, he needed to repent. His repentance was with that view of who Jesus was. But third, and most wonderfully, Peter's conversion involved him being rebuilt. It involves him being rebuilt. I love this. Do you know that after Jesus rose again, he made a special trip by Peter. Luke 24, it's recounted that the disciples were saying among themselves, the Lord has risen and appeared unto Simon. He has, he has, he has risen and he has appeared. And 1 Corinthians 15 says this in verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. What do you think Jesus communicated to Peter when he met with him after his resurrection? When he gave him that privileged place of, of a special individual meeting with him? What do you think was communicated of Peter's repentance and of the Savior's forgiveness? What do you think kinds of, of, of strengthening was put into this man who had seen himself as the rock and had seen himself crumble in this place and then now begin to be restored and to be rebuilt. You see, this was the Peter that after the Holy Spirit came upon him, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was the one saying things like, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. That word that perhaps had led to his shame and humiliation, now proudly and boldly proclaiming who Jesus was saying that this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, proudly, openly identifying with Jesus Christ, saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ being interrogated by the high priest and his men themselves and saying boldly, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And what did those high priests, what did that high priest and those Sanhedrin members realize? Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. This man who would curse and swear that I don't even know him. Now identifying with him no matter the cost. Friends, Whatever story you're telling about yourself today, whatever story Peter was telling about himself, 
It needed to be broken down so that a new story could be told. A story of a risen Savior, not a story of a Savior on trial with an outcome in doubt. No, a story of a risen, conquering, triumphant Jesus. A story of a man filled with the Holy Ghost and with boldness. A man who recognized his weakness and his failure and who was relying on the powerful one, Jesus Christ, for his strength. That was the story, the true story, that needed to be built up and to be the foundation of Peter's life. And you know, friend, this does in fact tie back in precisely to our Christmas season. Because the reality is that our culture tells a lot of stories about Christmas. And very few of them are the true story. I was listening again to Christmas music the other day. That wonderful, catchy old song, Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Is it wrong to tell children that they should be good for goodness sakes? No, it's not. But this very kind of just moralizing idea, watch out, be good, so you get rewards. That's a Christmas story we tell ourselves. Don't get coal in the stocking. The story of just general peace, goodwill to men, interfaith kind of cooperation at Christmas. I'm all for religious tolerance. I'm all for religious liberty. Is that the story of Christmas? The kind of general, let's get together with family and friends. These are all stories we tell ourselves about Christmas. But what's the true story of Christmas? The true story of Christmas is, is what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you know, friends, what, what our culture, what our world today needs is a Savior, not a comfortable story about themselves. You see, if I don't recognize that, that I'm the problem, if I don't recognize that I need a Savior, I'm the sick one in need of a physician, I can never accept the truth of a Savior. Jesus is the one who said, I came not to call the righteous. I didn't call, come to call the ones who were at the center of their own story looking blameless and good. I came to call sinners to repentance. Friends, this morning I ask you in this Christmas season, who's at the center of your story? Is it you? Or is it the Savior who comes to broken people like you and like me? and says, I can save, I can deliver, just trust me.